Hey, good morning. Great to see you. It's good to be back from vacation. Thank you for letting me go for a little bit. And I thought at the, in the meantime, it would just be so great to hear from uh, Corey and Jared and see what the Lord's been doing and some of the people that we've been training up in the Lord. It's great to be a part of that, by the way, involved in training people for vocational full-time Christian ministry. And uh, that's what we're involved in at Grace as well as uh, so much more in pursuit of serving the Lord and his kingdom. Um, I hope that all of you have been of, you know, able to hear every one of the messages on learning to sing in the desert, our series uh, out of the life of David in 1 Samuel, particularly chapters uh, 17 to the end of the of uh, First Samuel, I, I need you to remember the fact that David uh, has been on the run. That's what kind of got him into the desert, into the badlands, into those uninhabited places because he was being chased down. He was being uh, pursued by Saul. Saul wanted to eliminate the competition, and that was David. And David is the, also the anointed of the Lord. And, uh, and David is waiting for God's plan to unfold regarding Saul. But in the meantime, Saul has been pursuing David, and they've had some very close calls. And you'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 24, as David um, realized Saul and his troops, he had some 3,000 cracked troops. And David, of course, initially was all alone on the run, and then people started coming to him. And uh, he really kind of created a militia. And so he's got 600 men, and he's got families with him and so forth, but they were hemmed in. And Saul, they retreated into a cave, and Saul came into that cave. You remember? I hope you all remember that. And then after he left, David went out and from a distance, but pretty close, confronted him. His leverage was that he had spared Saul's life. Remember that? And Saul had said, wow, you're more righteous than I am. You know, you're the better man. And uh, so that's where we left it. You know, Saul said, hey, I'm sorry. And they kind of made a pact. Saul said, you know, take care of my family after I'm gone kind of thing. And David went his way, Saul went his way. And in the interval, David had that Nabal incident with Nabal the fool and Abigail, his wife, intervened. And then God struck Nabal. That's very interesting because the same word, God struck Nabal, is used in verse 10 of chapter 26 when David says, you know what? God will take care of Saul. He might strike him. Well, David got that idea from <laughs> what happened to Nabal. Or he might just die naturally, or he might die in battle. That's what David says. So he got a new wrinkle to the fact that, you know what? We're in God's hands. God's going to take care of Saul. But now, in chapter 26, word comes. Hey, David. Saul's looking for you. Saul's after you. And Saul has come out with 3,000 troops, 
And David kind of does a, are you kidding me? Not again? I thought we had this settled. How long is this going to go on? Is this man never going to give up? Doesn't he know what's going on? I'm not the bad guy? You've said things like that, I'm sure, in some situations where you have found yourself once again kind of back at the beginning or having to start over dealing with something that you thought maybe had been resolved. And so it is that uh, David sends out spies to make sure this is true. And we're told in verse 4, with certainty the spies come back. Yes, Saul has come out with all of his troops. He's pursuing you. So, David says, I need one guy. One guy who's willing to go with me. See, David's now going to take the initiative. One guy who's willing to go with me. And we're going to go into Saul's camp. Are you willing? And Abishai says, count me in. David takes Abishai with him at night while the troops are asleep. They sneak in past the guards into the inner sanctum of the camp, into the very tent of Saul. There's Saul sleeping. And Abishai says to David, God has given him into your hand. In fact, in verse 12, the writer of 1 Samuel says, God put the whole camp into a deep sleep so that they could even get in and out without being detected. So Abishai, he recognizes this isn't just an accident. God has given him into your hands. And David says, well, Abishai says, look, let me kill him right here. He says, I can do it with just one shot. Not even take two. Clean. Quick. And David says, do not touch the Lord's anointed. He says, take his spear. Take his water bottle. The spear represents defense. His water bottle represents life. And come with me. But then David says, wait a second, I'll get the spear. I'll get the water bottle. You're just a little too emotional right now. I don't trust you. So he takes the spear. He takes the water bottle. That, we're told that in verse 12. And then they leave. And then from a distance, in the dark, David starts hollering at the camp, and he wakes him up. And he calls to Abner. You thought Abner was a hillbilly, but Abner goes back to the time of David. He was, he was, King, he was King Saul's right-hand man, like his enforcer. He was a powerful man. He was a mighty warrior. And he was very faithful to Saul. And David taunts him. He says, hey, Abner. Hey, Abner, I thought you were protecting the king. Guess what? We just snuck in. Got right past you, Abner. What kind of a man are you? I even had an Israelite with me who wanted to kill the king. What kind of an enforcer, what kind of a protector are you, Abner? And then Saul hears him and wakes up. 
And that's where I want us to pick it up in verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And David said, And then he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. I wish you'd let me get through to you, Saul. (laughs) That's what he's saying. He says, If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he, that is the Lord, accept an offering. You know, we can settle this before the Lord with an offering if the Lord's behind this. We can resolve this. I can resolve this with the Lord. But if it is men... May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, that's a very important verse. David is saying, Saul, what these men are forcing you to do. And he thinks, he knows, he believes it's Saul. But he's being diplomatic. He's being polite. He's not going to insult Saul directly. So he says, Saul, if it's men that are driving you to do this, you know, if they're putting this in your ear. But then he says, what I want you to appreciate, he's saying, what's being done, Saul, is I'm being driven out of the land of my people, the land of my God. I'm being banished from my own land. And this land he calls the inheritance of the Lord. This is very important. Because as the inheritance of the Lord, it's the land of promise. It's the land where God dwells. And he, he is present there in all the practical ways of the people, of the culture. And you can thrive in the Lord there among his people. But he says, you're driving me out. And then notice what he says. He says, it's as if they're saying, go serve other gods, because that's what happens when you're driven out of your own land. You see? Because you have to oblige other gods when you live in another culture. In a way, this is foreign to us, but we as Christians, we're to be separate even within the world. And, and when we really step into the world, we have to oblige the gods of the world. Maybe that helps you to understand. And if you really go start living in the culture, you're going to find yourself drifting away from the Lord because you'll find yourself obliging the gods of the culture. Does that make sense? And that's kind of a practical way of saying what David is speaking about. He's saying, you're driving me out of the inheritance of the Lord, out away from the very presence of the Lord, where I am being forced to go and serve other gods. And that is abhorrent to me. And so he pleads with Saul. Now, therefore, verse 20, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, Okay, For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, (laughs) like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Give it up. Then Saul said, and get this, there's really some growth here. He says, Saul said, I've sinned. He didn't say you're more righteous than me. 
he just cuts, he says, I have sinned. In fact, he invites David to return. He says, return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Because I've acted foolishly. I've acted like a Nabal and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today. And I would not put you out of my hand, put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all my tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So he blesses David. And he says, David, you're going to be successful in all you do. That's my wish. And then it says, David went his way. See, he only has a way to go. (laughs) He didn't have a palace to go back to. But Saul returned to his place. Well, this passage has many echoes of things that were discussed back in chapter 24. But David is still in the desert. He's still in that desert place. And he has been singing even in the desert. I admire, I think we admire the person that can sing in the desert. You know, sing in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of hardships. Don't you admire someone like that when you know, you know they're going through a rough time? You don't need them to whine about it to know it. And when you don't hear them whining, but you hear them singing, or you detect that there's a kind of a song in their heart, it really causes you to, especially in the Lord, you say, wow, there's the reality of the gospel. There's the truth of God in that person's life. There's a vitality, a resilience, you know, that bounce under pressure and difficulties. I love a person who can sing in the desert, not just in the shower, not just in the breezes and cool of a tropical resort. I like a person who can sing in the desert. And I like a person who can sing in a slump. A slump is a desert too. I mention that because we're in the middle of baseball season. I happen to follow a baseball team, but I like all things baseball. And if you don't follow my team, well, that's okay. I like watching your team too. Although my team, I won't mention them by name, but they wear the glorious colors of black and orange. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I'm a big Giants fan. But you know, in baseball, you can get into a slump. It's tough when, you know, a player who, you know his batting average, you know what he's capable of, he actually has a batting spot. Did you know that people bat in an order? within baseball based on their ability to hit the ball. That's part of the strategy of baseball. So if you hit in the third or the fourth or the fifth spot, for example, you're there by design. But if you get into a slump, 
you jeopardize the team. And a lot of times, they'll move you out of that position. And no batter who has established himself as a hitter and has been put in a strategic batting position wants to be in a slump. It's not just your native abilities or your talents. But you're expected to perform based on previous accomplishments. And that's a lot of pressure. And sometimes when you're in a slump, even though you have a batting coach and you go back to the basics and you go through all the mechanics, we say things like the psychology of sports, the psychology of hitting. Have you ever heard of that kind of stuff? Because there's a part of the game that's in your head. You ever thought about that? The fact that sports has a lot to do with what's going on in your head. I know as a golfer, uh, I haven't golfed much lately, so maybe I can't bear the title golfer. But when I play golf a lot, I remember what um, Arnie used to say. Championship golf is played on a five... Championship golf is played on a five-inch course between your ears. And so it is with the psychology of our spiritual life, if you will. You know, just as we say, get your head on straight. Get your head in the game. So in the spiritual life, there are things that are going on in our head that really are important to our faithology, you know, if you will, in our Christian life. And the reason I mention this is because there's a real shocker here. You see, we read to the end of chapter 26, and we stopped with Saul returning to his place and David going on his way. But then we really need to read the very next verse. That's chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. That is a shock to me. I cannot make sense of that. I don't see how you move through chapter 17 to the end of 26, and then you say, and David said in his heart, you know what? I'm going to quit. That's what he says. I'm going to quit. I'm going to give up. Saul's never going to give up. He's going to kill me one day. I can't get this monkey off my back. I can't seem to change him. Nothing I do makes a difference. No matter what I try, it doesn't seem to work. Maybe he even was saying to himself things like, I'm a failure. Where's God in this? And then he says the remarkable thing, I'm going to lead the, I'm going to lead the very land that I just begged Saul not to banish me from. But because I think he's going to keep pursuing me, I'm just going to go out ahead of him. <laughs> I'm going to make the choice myself. I'm going to leave the inheritance of the Lord 
and go to the land of Gath and Achish, the king, the Philistines, and I'm going to put myself in a position where I have to oblige other gods because I have to live among foreign peoples just so I can get Saul off my back. That's the shocker. And you know what? It's not the desert that got to David. And it really isn't Saul that got to David. It's his own thought life. It's it's his own thought life. How we think determines our direction and our distance in life. I hope you'll let that settle into your mind and put down roots. How we think determines not only the direction of our life, but the distance. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Don't be shaped by this world. Don't be shaped by this world. When I was younger in the Christian life, I was always trying to feel, experience, live the vibrant Christian life. I wanted my life to go on being transformed, you know? I wanted the reality of Christ in my life. And I looked for ways to do that in all, you know, and it just, it dawned on me one day in reading Romans chapter 12, the second verse, and maybe you got there before me in your own Christian walk, and I'm not telling you anything new here, but when I read that, you know, don't be shaped, don't be molded, don't be fashioned by this world, but be transformed. That's what I want. I I want a vital, vibrant Christian life. And he's talking about that. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our default position. Now, some of us maybe have been raised and reared, and we've always kind of lived under the roof or the umbrella, as it were, of, of Christian parents and Christian influence, influence of God's Word. Maybe there's always been a Christian worldview, what we call a biblical worldview, influencing us. And sometimes we lose sight of the great truths of God's Word. This was impressed upon me when I became a pastor, and I I began actually counseling people. And I took that very seriously. So I not only wanted the counsel of God's Word, but I wanted to understand the whole scope of counseling. And so I've entered into the whole field of counseling, and I may not be the ultimate, I mean, you know, I don't have a degree in counseling itself, But what I've found out there in counseling, if you go out and you go to a counselor who who doesn't believe that God exists, who doesn't have any reverence or reference to a biblical worldview, in secular counseling, we call it, 
a counselor out there is not going to tell you your sins are forgiven. You're, such a counselor can't tell you God loves you. Those things are unavailable. That's because that's what we call revealed truth. And that truth changes the way we look at life. That God loves you? How about this? The fact that we look at every person differently because of the gospel. Because of what God has revealed in Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Every person counts because of the redemption. We call it the redemption. God's rescue and retrieval operation in Jesus Christ. Every person is important to him. We could have established that on the theology of creation from, from Genesis chapter 1. But it is ratified and established by Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You matter. You matter. And if that makes you, that everyone matters to God, that he is no respecter of persons, that he died for each and every person, that each and every person is worth a son, the the priceless Son of God, that that is true, it doesn't make you less important. It reminds you that you are important because everyone is important unto him. You count because of that truth. And if that really gets from your head to your heart, it makes a difference in the way you see people, the way you operate in this life, the way you look at this world. And that's just one fundamental core truth that is revealed that you're not going to find in any history book or any of the vast historical literature that we have available in this world. It only comes from the Bible and from God in Jesus Christ. We renew our minds. We are transformed by that truth. That's, what we're, that's why our minds can be renewed. Does that make sense? Very, very important. And that's how you endure. That's how you go the distance with Jesus Christ. That truth. It has to be vital. And that's what I want us to look at this morning from chapter 26. How do we go the distance? David gave up. Now, he will get back on track. There, we make course corrections according to the truth. But man, he made a huge decision here. And I think he was exhausted. I think he was tired. I think he was telling him stuff that wasn't true, things that were coming out of his own focus on himself. And we'll look at that. 
We can make those same mistakes, but to go the distance, we have to keep the truth vibrant. And so that's really what I want us to appreciate here this morning in this passage. Go the distance. And to do that, I want to share with you three things that I derive from the story here, from the life of David in chapter 26 through chapter 27, verse 4. The first is treasure the truth. The second is observe the presence of God. You could say practice the presence of God, recognize the presence of God, and prefer the plan of God. David treasures the truth. We have to treasure the truth. That's the foundation. That's why we can be transformed by the truth. But also, truth can be ossified. And that's what I want to talk about, you know. I mean, we can kind of detach ourselves. We can have it in our head and not in our heart. So we're going to move from, you know, treasuring the truth to observing the presence of God, because that's how we keep the truth vital. The truth really leads us to realize God is active in our lives, and then it leads us to prefer His plan even against what's going on around us, even against competing plans. You know, the world is going to peddle plans to you in your life. It's going to say, this is the better plan. That's the better plan. You're going to have friends and acquaintances. You're going to see commercials. You're going to see athletes and celebrities and people you admire. This is a better plan for you. See, and to get there and to stay real in the faith, you've got to treasure the truth, observe the presence of God in your life, and prefer His plan. And that's what I want to talk about here this morning. David did treasure the truth. You know, and it's so important to know the truth and to put it to work. When you know the truth, not just know it, but you put it to work, that's called faith. That's called faith because it's revealed truth. It's truth about God. Please understand this. You know, when you believe the truth that's about God, the truth that He's revealed in His Word and through Jesus Christ, and you believe in that, you believe in it enough to live your life based on it, you're believing it enough to, to navigate, to make choices in life, to make decisions in life, that's faith. That's faith. Other people will not make those decisions that you have made because they will not accept that truth. Make, make sense? That shapes our worldview, as I said. If you abandon this worldview, if you step away from this world, it's a cold world out there. It's not a world in which you matter so much as you matter to God. It's not a world of forgiveness. It's not a world of compassion that's anchored and grounded in what is the leverage of the cross and our gratitude for the grace of God. I hope you can appreciate that. That's what I'm working from here. That's what keeps me excited and energized all the time. While I come in here revved up, I want to tell you what God's been teaching me this week because it's, it's revitalizing. It's energizing. 
That's how we thrive and flourish and know the joy. And it changes our attitude. I want that truth to go to the center of your heart and change the way you're looking at your life, looking at your situation today. If you came in here moping and droopy and, ah, I don't even want to be at church, I want you to leave energized and excited and thinking differently. And what does that? Truth. Truth that goes to the heart because of a relationship with a living God who loves you, forgives you, has a purpose for your life, wants to work through you in this world to make things different. That's worth living for. And there's no one else out there peddling that kind of plan with all the power and energy that, that throbs in it. That's truth at work. We call them principles. Principles are truth. Truth in work clothes. Truths ready to lead and guide and direct. I like to put it this way. Principles are truth and judgment bottled. Bottled and ready to pour. Look at, for example, in verses 9 through 12. Oh, my goodness. Just, I'm going to just take one principle out of this passage. There's also a passage in verse 24, for example, where Paul appeals to the reciprocity he can expect from the Lord because the Lord is faithful and righteous. And he says, I've been faithful and righteous to you, Saul, because he is faithful and righteous. Or he goes with Abishai into the very presence of Saul as he's sleeping and vulnerable. And Abishai invokes God. He says, David, God has given him into our hands. This is God's work. Let me put him to death. But David already has a principle. He already has a truth in his heart. A truth that comes from God. And that truth is, he is my anointed. And so David says to Abishai, you don't touch the Lord's anointed. That's a principle. You see that? David says, hey, there are boundaries here. We can't cross those boundaries. When you get the truth of God in your heart, like his love, and you, you think about that, not just once when you get on your knees and pray a prayer and say, God, I am, a, I am such a miserable crud. Only you can make me over. Forgive me for my sin. I accept your salvation. I accept your love and grace in Jesus Christ. Make me a new person. I want to go forward for you. And just like with God, sometimes in our relationships, we say love once, I love you, honey, and then we don't think we ever have to say it again. But that's not the way we can live and thrive in our Christian walk. We need to get this truth into our lives and let it continue to, to throb, you know, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. That's how principles work. His love isn't just for Sunday morning. It's, yeah, it's for when we drive and when we're waiting in that long line or to be checked in to go on a plane or anything else that frustrates us. He says to Abishai, he says, don't touch the Lord's anointed, Abishai. Hey, Abishai, I want to teach you something. If we take him out, yeah, that's the way they do business in the world. 
Abishai says, I can do it with one blow. That's a, he's a good killer. He's a good soldier. He's a good fighter. But David says, that doesn't apply here because there's a greater truth. You do that to him, and you have blood guilt. And you know what, Abishai? If I give you permission to, I have blood guilt on me. See, that's truth at work in the heat of emotional situations. And you and I need to ground God's truth in our hearts so then when we're out there in the heat of battle, the heat of emotion, the heat of difficulties, we have these foundational truths that guide us, that even protect us. David says, get his spear and his water bottle in verse 11. And then what does he do? Verse 12 says, David gets it. What happened? I think David had second thoughts. He knew, he knew Abishai was all revved up, all emotional. I think he thought if he walked closer to Saul, he might just kill him anyway in the heat of the moment. So Saul says, I mean, David says, no, wait, I'll get the spear and the water bottle. Principles. David had those principles, and there's power in those principles. And a second thing, David observes the presence of God. You know, he recognizes with Abishai, he says, uh, you know what, God, and when he tells Abishai, he says, God wants us not to kill Saul, but to trust him. He belongs to God. So he says, God will handle him. He will strike him prematurely. Now, that's a new twist. The other two things he says in verse 10 is he'll die of natural causes or he'll die in battle. Well, duh. But notice, he remembers what God did with Nabal. And he says now to Abba, you know, in life, Sometimes we get into all kinds of what seem to be very natural situations. And if we would just imagine by prayer that God could have a role in this situation, and it begins with me, by submitting my plans to his plans. But we have to first remember God's present and active in our lives. And we have to invite him in. David does that here with Abishai. He says, I remember what he did. God will take care of this. He says, so Abishai, you and I, we get to back off. That's a powerful principle, isn't it? Look at all the influence it had, because it's grounded in the truth. And that's what happens in our lives, too. That's what sets us apart from the world. But what we have is a danger when we lose sight of the presence of God. And that brings me to the second point, real quick. You know, to flourish in Christ, we have to recognize God's presence. We can have truths, but we can just hold, hold them as, as concepts. This is, I guess, human nature. We have to keep them alive. We have to keep truth alive by acting on it. We have to act on the presence of God. And you can, you can talk about truths. David talks about truth. You can talk about principles. But it's so important to actually steer your life based on faith 
in the action of God in your life, His presence and His leading. That's where faith really goes the extra mile. David knows how important that is. We saw that in verse 19 and 20 when he talked about the inheritance of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. But what's interesting here, and this is an argument from silence, God puts that camp under a deep sleep. And Abishai even recognizes God's given him into your hand. There's an illusion that God's in this. But David doesn't seem to draw on that when everything's said and done. I mean, you never hear here that he recognizes it. It's for Samuel, the author, who makes us aware of what David and Abishai may allude to, but it almost seems like David thinks that it was their own school, skill that caused them to avoid detection. Later in chapter 27... This is a really amazing to me. You know, I mentioned David quits, and you might think, well, maybe you don't have it right. Do you know that in chapter 27, God, not the, gen- I mean, the generic name for God, the personal name for God, God or the Lord never, never mentioned. Not once. God, de- God, has, the- God has the prophet Gad. He has the priest Abiathar. He has the ephod, and he doesn't consult it. Remember all the other times David consulted the Lord? I think he is so upset. In fact, I think he's been moving in this direction maybe because Saul doesn't give him any reason to give up hope or to think that things wouldn't be different. What can keep us fresh? What can keep us from giving up? What can keep us from believing in the God who changes people? How about you in your marriage or at work? There's somebody who's exhausted you, tired you. You're ready to give up on them. Maybe it's your own child that keeps repeating some of the same things. No matter how much you try to teach and be patient, they keep doing the same thing. And there's just a point where you say, I'm justified on principle. I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to cut you out of my life. I'm going to quit on this whole thing. I'm going to go somewhere else. That's when we've given up on God. We may not trust Saul. And we may have reason not to trust Saul. Every reason David did. But he has given up on trusting God. And that's the difference. And if there's one thing I could really encourage you to be thinking about in those areas of your life where you're just, you're at that point where you're dispirited and discouraged, you are not any longer seeing what God could do if you continue to put your trust in Him. Maybe you haven't been putting your trust in Him. Maybe you've been doing it on your own. Maybe part of the complication or problem has been some of your own plans at work. I don't know. But we're trying to get out of this some of the things that we can learn about going in the right direction and going the distance. We stay vital and fresh that way. And that's what causes us to prefer prefer the plan of God when we know God is really still at work. i got to quit, run out of time. But let me just ask you this. By the way, let me just, i got to squeeze this in. This is the first time in verse 1 of chapter 
Did I mention this is the first time we're admitted to the interior thought of David? And when you look at it, he says, I shall perish. There's nothing better for me. Better for who, David? You see, he's lost sight of his identity. He's the anointed. He's the anointed of God. He's lost sight of his role and what God wants to do through David as a leader. Now it's about me. And that's when we have to preach to ourselves about the truth of God. Do you ever preach to yourself? It's really a good practice. It's very important, you know, to, uh, to realize that this truth, this truth that has been revealed needs to, to really forge the direction of our life. Have you ever asked yourself, you know, I'm, I'm becoming a teacher for the first time. I need to develop a philosophy of being a teacher. Have you ever done that? Or, I'm getting married. What's going to be my philosophy toward my marriage? What's my, going to be my philosophy of marriage as a husband? Or my philosophy of marriage as a wife? What's going to be my philosophy in this new business? What is a philosophy? But it's built on the truths that shape, that transform your life. If you're not incorporating the truths of the gospel into your life, into the practices of your life, you'll never be able to say with Paul that you may be able to demonstrate what is the will of God, what is good, what is profitable, what is comprehensive. That's what perfect or complete means. God's word, God's truth is for every area of our lives. We need to incorporate it into our lives practically in everything we do that we might go the distance. I don't want to see any one of you end up because of your own stinking thinking. And that's what, that's what derailed David here. He'll get back on track. He'll correct. That's what we do when we repent. We don't just repent once. We repent daily as God's truth competes for our tension and the reshaping of our lives. How are you looking at your situation today? That thing that's exhausted you, that thing that you don't want to face again. How are you looking at it? Are you preaching to yourself out of the truth of God's Word? Do you realize the difference you can make in the power of God? That He's your David in that situation. And He wants you to keep on keeping on because He has a plan that He wants to unfold. He doesn't want you to forget what He's done, what He's able to do, and to give up on His plan. He wants you to wait for His plan to unfold, and He wants you to remain an agent in that situation, in His power. you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. If God has spoken to your heart in some way, I'm going to be up here along with elders, pastoral staff, their wives. We'd love to pray with you if God has spoken to your heart. Maybe you want to make some commitment this morning in prayer. Want to take a step in the right direction, and you know it's going to call not just for hearing about it, but doing something about it. And you want to sanctify that in a way dedicate yourself through prayer. Come. Maybe to intercede for someone else. Maybe you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ this morning because he's the heart and soul of it all and you don't know him and you want to know him. If so, we invite you to come. After I say amen and pray for us, 
um, we'll be up here for that very thing. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, your truth. It, it vitalizes us. It changes the way we feel, see the world, see our place in it, and our place in your heart. And we praise you for that, for the foundation of it in Jesus Christ, his real death, his real resurrection, the new life that we have in him through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that we know in our lives daily, your presence. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.